I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day, some of the world's most fascinating founders share their stories with us before they've made it. Their highs and lows. Mistakes and triumphs. But always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories with you. This is Unfinished Biz. Both of us looked down at our two feet and we're like, you're wearing Uniqlo and I'm wearing a 12 pack of whatever sub brand that I bought at TJ Maxx on sale four years ago. On this episode of Unfinished Biz, Bombas co-founder and CEO Dave Heath lays out how a combination of career drive and a strong belief in philanthropy drew him into the world of making socks. Socks are the most requested clothing item at homeless shelters across the U.S., and Bombas pledges that for every sale, another article of clothing is donated to someone in need. But the apparel industry is a saturated, challenging, and all-around competitive market. Because we didn't take venture, I took that capital incredibly seriously, right? These are people that I see every week. These are, you know, this is like kids' college funds, you know, potentially like down payments on homes and, and stuff. So like I was super, super, super conscious about, you know, how we spent our money. Find out how Dave secured the money he needed in order to grow his business and to help humanity at the same time, why the business playbook worked for his team, and where Bombus is expanding to next. Unfinished Biz starts now. Hey, Wayne, I think we're about to hear a really interesting story about entrepreneurship and sort of what really drives a founder. That's right. You know, and, and socks of all things. But I guess, <laughs> you know, an unfinished biz, we're working our way up. We started with shoes with That's Allbirds right. and Rothy's. Now Bomba's socks. Now we need to line up pants, shirts and hats. I'm on it. I'm on it. <laughs> and then we met up with Dave of Bomba's socks in New York City to hear a little bit more about how Bomba's came to be. So I grew up in New York, uh, just outside of the city, and uh, my dad is a first-generation immigrant. And from a, about the youngest I can remember, um, I knew that he was starting a business. Yeah. Uh, he started it in the basement of our house. And um, I don't think I... I, I definitely what kind of business a, was it? So it's it's interesting. Um, if you've ever seen wood chips on playgrounds, yeah. my yeah. dad invented the safety system that utilizes wood chips that goes that go really? on playgrounds. No way. Yeah, how, yeah we could probably spend a whole episode that, exactly. on that. Um, That's, it saved a lot of yeah. a lot of a lot of pain and suffering. It has. Yeah, there's a big. It was the first like ADA compliant. Um, you know, playground surfacing so wheelchairs can go on it. Right. It, it yeah. drains water really easily, so you can go on it right after you play. It's a pretty fascinating That's story. Very cool. All pre-internet yeah. D to C. Wow. I mean, like my dad's like, yeah, what? My dad's like fundraising. You yeah. raised money. Exactly. It's like you didn't she- put your shekels into this thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All you need is a basement. <laughs> right. All you need is a basement <laughs> and exactly. five thousand bucks. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I, I mean, I think peripherally, I you know, was so exposed to it. And, you know, he would put us to work, obviously, because uh, it was in our house and we'd pack up samples for conferences and yeah. trade shows. And we were in all the photo shoots. And so uh, <laughs> I don't know whether, you know, I don't know how much uh, nature versus nurture was in my kind of DNA to be an entrepreneur or uh, just because I was exposed to it from a really young age. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, before I kind of even knew what entrepreneurship was you know i was that kid in the neighborhood who was doing car washes and lemonade stands and knock on the neighbor's door and be like hey can i clean your gutters or can (laughs) i like walk your dog like can i do anything to get a buck i love gi joes and my parents were like well we're not buying them for you so like if you want to get them like you gotta earn the money 
so I think from a really early days, um, I, uh, I kind of established, you know, the idea of entrepreneurship. And in high school, uh, I wanted to become a DJ, as everybody does, uh-huh. right? Um, and there was like twelve hundred dollars worth yeah. of DJ equipment I wanted, and my parents were like, "No chance in hell are we doing?" Because I, I, I went through hobbies pretty quickly, yeah. um, and so uh, they were like, "Oh, we'll we'll lend you the money, and you can pay us back, but mm-hmm. you got to figure out how to do it." And so I started this mobile DJ company and dj seven-year-old birthday parties and nice um you know and i paid it off pretty quickly and i was like i really like this entrepreneurship and business and you know typical i think entrepreneur store found up sorry school was not you know i wasn't like the straight a student you know i was like a solid c plus b um and so when we started looking for colleges um i think my parents very uh very consciously tried to steer me towards you know things that would I think work well with my skill set. Yeah. So they encouraged me to go look at this really small school up in up in Boston called Babson, and uh, I remember touring the school and I was like, oh, I love the I love I'm super interested in the coursework and it was the first time I felt like wow this is like yeah. a place for me I love all this stuff. Um, and thankfully they looked past my grades and my SAT <laughs> scores and saw that I was pretty. Um, you know uh, that, I, that I was scrappy, scrappy and kind of yeah. could do things on my own, and, and I think the the DJ company thing really helped me get in. Um, so I went to school there. I fell in love with it. Um, you know, and did and you I do kinda, entre- their entrepreneurship program there? Well, yeah. So their so their entire undergrad program is is set around entrepreneurship. Yeah. Um, so even your liberal arts classes are like speech giving and you know creative oh, wow. writing around you know. You know, I can't remember what it was called, but it was something around like how to write, you mm-hmm. know, things for yeah. business um, and like business law, law classes. And even when we studied, you know, I took a Latin American history course. A lot of it was framed around, you know, economics and how politically and, you know, business and stuff influenced, you know, Latin America and our relationships with them today. So everything was through this lens of business. And I yeah. just like gobbled it up. I was just like, oh my God, this is amazing. And this is, you know, 2001, 2005. So this is pre the current, you know, there weren't any podcasts about, you know, I don't <laughs> think there were podcasts back then, exactly. but, um, you know, we didn't have Shark Tank. We didn't yeah. have How I Built This. We didn't have, mm-hmm. you know, uh, The Profit. We didn't have all these shows around. I think Entrepreneur Mag was like the only thing in right. town. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I was, I was kind of like pre the startup Right, like before it got you start any businesses while you're at Babson, or um, was it after Babson that you not not formally? Um, I <laughs> so I definitely think this is part of my entrepreneurial journey. Um, I was a Cutco knife salesman. Nice, yeah. All right, um, you know, I got one of the, I got one of the flyers, yeah. you know, in the mail, and I was just like, "Did you oh. DJ with Cutco?" Kni- I, I did, did you- DJ knife. No, um, <laughs> but I was like, "Oh, this is interesting," and like, you know, all my friends were getting jobs at Bear Stearns because that existed back then too. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I was just like, "That sounds boring as shit." Like, yeah. I don't want to fucking put on a suit every day and traipse into the city and go get coffee for some like you know old dude um so i was like i'm gonna you know i was i kind of always did my own thing yeah and so i was like i'm gonna figure out what this like knife thing is about and i mean i sat in that class and i was just like oh this is totally up my alley like i could kill this thing <laughs> um i did it for four summers straight nice. um i ended up being one of the top salespeople in the northeast i sold over four hundred thousand dollars worth of knives over my four summers that's a lot of knives i made yeah. like a hundred and sixty thousand dollars in oh, four years that's wow. crazy yeah so um 
I was just like, I got bit. I was just like, oh man, like I was working four days a week, four hours a day. All my friends were busting their asses. I was sitting by the pool. Like it was just, <laughs> just like, I was like, I want to always work for myself. Yeah. I never want to work for anybody. Um, so I graduated and I kind of always knew in the back of my head that I wanted to start something. And, um, yeah, I'd always write down ideas and, you know, when you're 22, unless you're like the savants like Zuck and all the rest of those guys, you know, um, I think practical advice is actually like go into the workforce. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you don't have to be the 22 year old savant entrepreneur who comes up with the next billion dollar idea, you know, the day you graduate from college. Uh, so I, I went through and I, I worked at a bunch of companies and my trajectory actually was like, I, I went from big company to a smaller company to an even smaller company. <laughs> and then I ended up at a place where it was like me and four other people. Right. Um, super small, like early stage startup. Um, and I just found that I gravitated more and more towards the intimacy of, of being able to be involved and watch and see how things work and develop. And uh, and that's where I met my co-founder, uh, Randy. Um and uh, yeah, I mean, our, our relationship developed over five years of watching this kind of media company grow. Yeah, um, it grew to about 125 people. We took notes of all the good things that the company had done. Took even more notes on all the things we thought they did poorly, mm-hmm. um, particularly as it relates to company culture and transparency, which I think are the cornerstones of where we are today. Um, and you know. Just over that time, we would grab lunch and work out together, and always kind of throw ideas against the wall and see what would stick. And um, how did how did it turn into socks? Well, that's a great question because because <laughs> no, I will tell you, nobody like no five year old is running around being like, you know what I'm going to do when I get up? It's like I'm going to start a sock company. It's like that is ne- those words have never <laughs> been uttered like in the history of man. Um, so uh, so yeah, I was you know at work pretty bored as I as I was because you know I wanted to look for my next thing and you know I was eager to kind of move on and, and do my own thing and I saw this post on Facebook it said that socks were the number one most requested clothing item at homeless shelters and it was a news thing from the Salvation Army and what year was this this was like early 2011 okay um, so we were we'd been in the we'd been in the media company for five and a half years um, and yeah, I stumbled across this quote and just kind of sat there and I was like, man, that's sad. Like, I was like, I was like equally depressed as I was like curious. Yeah. I was like, why socks though? It's like, right. When you think like jackets or jeans yeah. or sneakers or like hats and gloves, like things that like, you know, would keep you warm and bulk you up and yep. you know, durable items and quite the opposite. And so I, I walked over to Randy's desk and I was like, I was like, hey. I was like, did you know socks were the most requested clothing item in homeless shelters? And just he was dro- like, and dropping, dropping some knowledge. Yeah. yeah. And he was just like, huh? It's like, <laughs> what are you talking about? He was like, no, why would I know that? Right. And yeah. he's like, but thanks for bumming me out. Right. It's like, that's pretty sad. Right. Um, and so, you know, we didn't immediately go like, oh, there's a business. Like, yeah. let's run whiteboard and do all this stuff. I think we just kind of sat with it and found ourselves like telling people that we knew. You know, just we couldn't shake it really. Yeah. And, you know, think this is so early 2011. Uh, Tom's is five years old. Yep. Um, so in their kind of trajectory of where they are, they're growing fast, but definitely not the brand that we know today. Mm-hmm. So there's still kind of this up yep. and coming. And there's this like, oh, there's this guy, Blake, and he has this idea one for one. And, you know, it's taken, you know, everyone's crazy about these shoes. And, you know, the company's growing really fast. And similarly, 
there was this other company that just popped onto the scene called Warby Parker. Um, they were getting written up in Vogue and GQ. I think they were like four months old. Yeah. And it was this reinvigoration, I think, in the media around the one for one idea. And like that started spawning like with the next generation of businesses or give back businesses and all this stuff. And I remember seeing Blake speak and I was like, first I was like bowled over. I was like, oh my God, this guy is, you know, so inspirational. Um, and then I was like, oh, right, that sock thing. Right? <laughs> I was like, maybe. Like, we could create a sock company that donates a one-for-one, and we could help solve this sock problem. And so I took that idea back to Randy, and, and um, you know, I, I had some other friends around, a friend who's a clothing designer, and we just, like, started talking about it. And we're like, okay, well, if we got to donate a lot of socks. we got to sell a lot of socks, and we're going to sell a lot of socks. Like, we've got to make a really great product, right? Like, that's what every bi- good business starts with is a great product. And... Um, we just did a lot of research. We went out into the field and tried to understand where the white space was in the market. And, you know, we were in the startup culture, so we weren't like into that whole funky dress sock game. Yeah. And that was like still kind of a new thing at the time. And um, we just didn't relate to it. But like it, dress socks were having a moment, right? They were definitely having a moment. Early days, Happy Socks, Paul Smith and those yeah. brands. Um, and we kind of looked down at our own two feet. And we, were, we worked in a men's media publication, online media publication. And part of the things that we covered was fashion. So, like, you know, just peripherally, we, we enjoyed, you know, we cared about the jeans we were wearing yeah. and the shirts and, the, you know, high-quality products. And both of us looked down at our two feet and were like, you're wearing Uniqlo. Mm-hmm. And I'm wearing a 12-pack of, you know, Nike whatever sub brand that I bought at TJ Maxx on sale four years ago. You know, they've got holes in them. They feel like cardboard. They're falling down. And like, I'd never put a ton of a time or attention into thinking about my, my socks. And so we went out and we started like scouring the shelves and really trying to understand, you know, like what's out there. Right. In terms of like athletic socks, right. In terms of something that was like not a dress sock. And so what we realized was there's actually these like two, very distinct markets. There was the low quality, cheap, mass market commoditized products, the things you're going to get at TJ Maxx or Marshalls or Walmart or, you know, Uniqlo, kind of the yeah. cheap, whatever, it's a basic, you know, yep. buy it, throw it out, who cares? And then there was this subsection of brands that were very niche and, and you know, specific to like running and cycling and basketball and hiking. And, right. you know, they had immense amounts of technology like seamless toe and arch support and crazy new fibers that would cool your feet and venting and <laughs> you know articulation and all this crazy stuff but these socks were like 20 bucks a pair yeah you know and and also you could only really find them at like these specialty sporting goods stores so obviously like paragon here in new york but like you walk into a jackrabbit or some of these like more you know niche yeah, yeah especially stores which i'd never been exposed to you mm-hmm. know i went to the gym but like i didn't i would never consider myself a runner or a cyclist so i was never marketed this product in any in any real arena um but the more and more we started testing we were like holy shit like yeah you get rid of a toe seam like you don't have to be a marathon runner to like appreciate the fact that you don't have that annoying seam running across your toes yep. when you're like wearing a pair of shoes like everybody feels that and you don't need to be you know uh you know a tour de france cyclist who want your feet to stay cool and cushioned you know throughout the day so the more and more we started wearing this product we were like why has nobody taken the technology that you find in these categories and marketed it towards the mass market community, like the mass market customer? And so that's when we kind of had our like aha huh. moment. They also were designed very sporty, right? right? They had like racing stripes and like all these crazy colors and stuff. And I was like, 
Let me find something that like you could easily wear with a pair of jeans. Also looks good in the gym. Like for the and this was pre athleisure. So yeah. this was like the early days of like athleisure. The idea of athleisure. Um, and so yeah, we spent two years on product development. Um, you know, and I think I think the fact that we had no manufacturing experience prior to this really helped us develop a product that was unique. But how did right? you? De- I mean, how did you figure out how to go make it, make or design a sock? So this is where besides, a bit of- I mean, there's one thing about making store checks, and then there's another <laughs> dynamic of actually figuring out how to design and make them. Yeah, there. This is where a bit of I think luck comes into it. Um, I sat down with my dad uh, over dinner one night, and I said, you know. I think I'm going to start this sock company. I've got a crazy idea. I think it's going to be good. And he was like, you know, you should talk to your godfather. He was in the sock business for 40 years and <laughs> he did really well. I don't know what he did, but like you should go talk to him. So I, I hadn't spoken to him in like 10 years, you know. And so I sat down with him and I was like, oh, my dad said you've done a lot in socks. Like, <laughs> you know, what's the backstory? And he's like, oh, well, I was president and CEO of this sock company called Gold Toe. Um, oh, wow. in, the, in the like 90s and yeah. I was like oh, I've heard of yeah. Gold Toe I was yeah. like okay and then he was like and then I left Gold Toe and I started one of the first private label sock manufacturing companies um, and he was really one of the first people to kind of globalize sock manufacturing so when all the mills started shutting down in North Carolina he like went out into the world yeah. and figured out like who could also make you know technical socks so you couldn't have met <laughs> a more Informed no, sock I mean, expert. Total luck. Yeah. I mean, total stars aligned. Like you your know, godfather. My godfather. I mean, like yeah. couldn't 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 make it up. Right. I'm just curious. Did he? Was he enthusiastic no. about the? Okay. No. Because no, I mean, he he's, hated been, it. he's been in the game for he a while. Yeah. He was like, this business sucks. He's <laughs> like, you know, he's like, you know, you're making the customer just wants cheap. You know, right. I was making socks for less than a penny. You know, selling them for less than a dollar. And he's right. like, the people you got to deal with for this, you know, is like terrible. And but he was he grew up in the wholesale business. Yeah. You know, he was a totally. you know, yeah. he, you he's know, in he was, the commodity sauce yeah. business. business, right? He was yeah. like old school garmento, yeah. you know. So like right. that that world, you know, stunk, right? right. Like it was, yeah. you know, it was everyone's a, nickel and diming and you can see why he hard. he'd be jaded and worn out. Oh, he 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 hated it and he was like, I'll help you, but he's like it's like God bless, like good yeah. luck. And right. he was like, if it's gonna work, this internet thing is the way to do it. And he was like which was obviously kind of cute. Like That's um, funny. But yeah, so I sat down and we and he was like, "Tell me what you want to make. I'll introduce you to the best factories in the world. I'll help like you know lend my credibility so that we can you know produce a product. You don't have to like worry about you know trying to convince them that you're real." And so yeah, we spent two years on product development. We got linked up with this amazing factory um, producing for Nike and Saucony and Asics and Smartwool and New Balance and. Uh, and yeah, they worked with us for almost two years, going back and forth. You know, I was moonlighting. I was working obviously full time, and I'd be uh, you know, on the phone with them at night and mm-hmm. trying to I'd be sending back samples. And I'd say like, oh, I just found this sock, and this toe seam is really cool. Can you can we do that? And you know, I didn't go in being like, right. well, it's got to be a three by one stitch. I was going to say, da, 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 and like, you like, know. did they bring the first prototype to you, or was it the other way around? No, the, I, I basically had collected you know call it 10 or so different socks and i was like i like the toe seam on this yeah. one i like the arch like support on this Frankensteining one. this yeah. yeah i was like i want you know exactly yeah. I, I, as a consumer right? yeah i didn't i wasn't i wasn't coming at it from cost i wasn't coming at it from like how do we make margin or yeah. like how do we sell these and the funny part is is you know all of these features that i was kind of pulling together they were like this is going to be a really expensive sock. They're like, you want to do a toast, a seamless toe on an athletic sock. That's bananas. They're like, do you know how much that costs? I'm like, no idea. And they're like 10 cents a pair. And I'm like, yeah, 
<laughs> like who I like I can convince a customer to yeah. pay 10 yeah. cents for, you know, for for a toseum. I mean, they're they're again because they're so tradition they're totally so right. trained to be yeah. so mass market and yeah. cheap. It's so commoditized. That the idea that I would spend 10 cents on a seamless toe when they're like you can produce a pack of socks for for less than that is like mind blowing to right. them. Yep. Um, so yeah, so we went back and forth, had a product that I was pretty happy with and, you know, obviously I handed it out to friends and family and feedback was strong and, you know, as it probably has to be because they're your friends and family, anybody will tell you anything that like, you know, <laughs> you're working on is like a great idea. Uh, secretly behind their back, they're like, can't believe he's working on this. Yeah, but, yeah, but I think they probably like the sock. Cause again, they did. Because yeah. you, you, you made the Cadillac of socks. I did. I did. Know? And so. Uh, when they were probably wearing, you know, less than 10 cent socks you're totally right on their feet so, totally right. so probably, they always ask they're like how yeah. can we buy more of these and that's I was like, right oh, we're gonna yeah. launch soon we're gonna launch soon and so ultimately we decided to launch on indiegogo um you know i didn't want to raise money uh to start i wanted to you know our thesis was okay if we're going to build a digitally native brand we've got to test the hypothesis of whether a customer is actually going to buy our product before they touch and feel it in person right so, yeah so why did it have to be digitally native like when did you make that decision um, I think because, again, I think because Randy and I, we kind of were born out of, you know, we spent a large part of our career at a, you know, at a digital magazine. Right. We kind of understood how online marketing worked yep. and, you know, how to engage users over email. And I think just, you know, build websites and build a brand that was digital and not physical. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's just like naturally we kind of lean towards that. Yeah. Um, because that's where our strengths were. Yep. Yep. Um, so yeah, so we picked Indiegogo. Uh, and we were like, okay, like let's put our story out into the world. Let's see if people care about the product and care about the mission. Did you have a name? Uh, we did, yeah. So that's where one of my other co-founders, Aaron Wolk, comes into the story. Um, we had gotten connected through mutual friends. Uh, and you know, so it was like, yeah, he's a graphic designer. He you know, runs his own little small little agency. Um, we kind of hit it off immediately. And he... He really helped us build kind of the visual side of the brand. Randy, who's got a background in uh, brand strategy, uh, really helped us build you know kind of the storytelling mm-hmm. you know aspect. And those two still today work super super closely together to kind of own the brand as a whole. But how did the how did the name Bombus? So Aaron Aaron went away for a weekend, and you know we said, all right, we need a name. Just like come up with you know something, and you know he obviously knew that we've got this mission, and we were rooted in altruism, and so he came back and he was like, okay, I've narrowed it down to bees and ants, all right? Because <laughs> bees and ants are the only two animals outside of human beings who have the ability to be truly altruistic. They work together. They only care about their community, right? And they're willing to die, you know, in service of protecting, you know, either That's the colony cool. or the hive. Super interesting. Yeah. And so he was like, but, you know, bees are more lovable than ants. And I was like, I like, love it. And so the <laughs> word bombus is derived from the Latin word for bumblebee. And oh. so this whole thing kind of came together where it was like, bees are small. They make a big impact on the world. Socks are small. And if, they, you know, they can have a big impact on someone's life who's experiencing homelessness. And just like the idea of like customers coming together, helping out in our community. I think one of the evolutions that we had for the one for one or give back business model was that we wanted to do it locally. We wanted to donate in our backyard here in the US. Yep. You know, we'd just come out of the Great Recession. You know, there was like the face of homelessness was new, right? It was a family living in their car because they lost their job, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, it wasn't just this you know, panhandling drug addict, you know, which again, I now have an immense amount of sympathy for and, and care uh, due to our 
kind of relationships with the homeless community. But either way, you know, the the biased view of mm-hmm. homelessness, at, at least for me, it changed as I watched things like 60 Minutes and, you know, really saw the struggles that people dealt with when they were losing their homes in the mortgage crisis. Yep. When you launched the business, so you, you launch you launch online. Yep. How, how did you how did you how did you get some initial trial? Well, so over those two years of developing the product, you know, I was using we were all using our friends and family as kind of our you know mm-hmm. focus groups of source. In a weird way, and unplanned, we were kind of carrying them along with this journey with us. Um, so, and and again, they loved the product by the time it was ready. Um, that the second that we hit go on, you know, put published it live, they all bought. Like they all <laughs> came and bought, and then they also were on Facebook and they were like. My friend just started this company. I'm not saying you should buy them because like my friend started it. He's like, like they're like, I wear these sites. They're yeah. amazing. I can't wait to buy more. Yeah. You should buy them. Yeah. So we did $20,000 in our first day just because we had this kind of built-in fan base before we Who were already launched. rabid fans of yeah. socks. Yeah. So how did you know how to price the Cadillac of socks? You know, I put your finger in the air. I, no, no idea. I mean, yeah, you, you use some kind of business sense of backing into like margin and realizing that, all right, if we're going to grow and, you know, financial projections and support a business, like mm-hmm. what's a what's a price point? And then you price against the market. Uh-huh. And, you know, we we knew that we were pricing ourselves against 15, 18, 20 dollar socks. And we're like, well, let's do the Warby Parker model. Let's beat everybody else and, you know, come in under. Um, there's a story in here somewhere where we ended up hiring a pricing expert and, moved our price from 9 to 11 and watched our our conversion rate go up because there was actually a price to quality um, discrepancy. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, so, you know, but that's a That's uh, interesting. That's a separate uh whole separate. Yeah, but you know, you got to feel it out, yeah. right? Um yeah. and you know, so some trial and error. Some trial and error. And then um, how and how did you fund this? So, we ended up doing about $150,000 on Indiegogo in our first 30 days. Um, we took that, that was enough to place our first production order and build a website and then still have a little bit of cash left over. Uh, we spent 30 days, built a website super quickly, shipped all the orders for the Indiegogo campaign, um, and then kind of sat around. And our next hypothesis was like, okay, how much of this was just like people buying into the story and mm-hmm. loving like what we were doing? Now that these 3,000 people are getting their socks, are they going to come back? Are they going to tell their friends <laughs> yeah. about it? Like before, you know, and I had friends that were like, let me give you money. You know, like, let's 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 do this. And yeah. I was like, eh, I still got to make sure this thing is like right. really has legs before I'm willing to do, take on that risk and stress and whatever. Um, so, yeah, so we we kind of sat back and the two months following all, shipping out all the orders, we ended up doing another hundred fifty thousand in sales. And mm-hmm. so at that point, we we're like, all right, we've done three hundred grand in five months. Like. You know, th- three of those months are really the only, you know selling. Right? Yeah, a couple of those months we were dark. Um, and we're like, all right, I think we've got something here. And so, early 2014, decided to go out and raise some friends and family. Thought it'd be a couple hundred thousand dollars. Uh, the momentum, I think, at the time, uh, and just the interest level and the way that it kind of worked its way through uh, the network of people that we knew, um, we ended up raising a million. Yep. And during that same time period, while we were kind of funding for our seed round, uh, we get an email from Shark Tank. And they were like, hey, we saw your Indiegogo campaign. Would you have any interest? And I was like, is this one of those like Nigerian prince emails? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was like, you know, because it was from a Gmail account. Like, I was yeah. like, there's no way. There's like Shark Tank casting 03 at yeah. Gmail. I was like, right. I was like, there's no way this yeah, is real. Right. But That's I was so like, funny. I was like, yeah, as a lark. I was like, yeah, sure. Like, whatever. And so like, let's set up a call. And I was like, I don't know if this is real or not. So Randy <laughs> and I hopped on and, 
It was very much real. Um, I'll say that's a good part. They actually want to set up a call. Then you're like, huh? Because usually they don't want to talk to anybody. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, what turns out you you realize actually in hindsight is that they actually end up doing a lot of casting off of those sites because yeah. they know you have some traction. Right. They know you have a story that resonates with, yeah. with you know a wide audience. It makes total um, sense. And they're not just taking your word that like you sold. So like some of the due diligence is kind of done yep. for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they get to see how you are on camera as like founders. Right. So what year were you on Shark Tank? So we fil- we filmed uh, June of 2014, uh, and then it was like a hey, like we'll call you if if it airs. Right? Yeah, it could never air. It could air, you know, anywhere from September to May, and or it could never air. You could never hear from us again. Don't call us. We'll call you. Um, so we're like, all right, let's move forward with the business as if nothing ever happened. Um, but you cut a deal on the show. We did cut a deal on the show, um, but there. And again, I don't know if this is the way that. I think this is the way that a lot of the sharks operate, which I would operate this way too, is they're like, let's hold on the deal until we find out if you're going to air. Because I think it's a free look, right? They want to see, does 13 million Americans, how do they respond to the brand and product once it's out in front of them? And then if they do well, great, let's fund it. If they don't, I'm not going to like flush 200 grand down the toilet. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, we went back, fundraised, started operating business as usual, uh, closed our fundraising round in September of 14. And then a week later... Uh, we get the phone call. They're like, we're going to be on the season premiere in two weeks. Uh, so we're like, oh, my God, we are totally not ready for this. Um, you know, two weeks to prepare right. uh, you know, for 13 million people seeing you know, your product. Um, did what we could, hired you know, customer service people, you know, temps, and just kind of tried to batten down the hatches. Uh, we end up airing. Uh, our website crashes. You know, it was a total, total disaster. Everything. Uh, Everything you expected, it sounds like. Oh, I, more, more, <laughs> more, like way more. Um, great experience, super stressful. Um, the two months following Shark Tank, we did 1.2 million of revenue, sold out of all of our product. Uh, the 13 months prior, total revenue to date was about 900,000. So, oh, wow. Um, you so know, which, for, for, just out of curiosity, would you recommend it? Now, totally. Having, having gone through it? Totally, totally. Game for, changer. For what purpose? Is Game more changer. Marketing, more guidance more I don't, I don't know yeah it's... i mean da- look damon's been an incredible advisor to us um you know he's obviously scaled very large apparel companies and given us you know leadership advice along the way um the effect of being on the show and you know the audience that you reach um and then especially if you get a deal it validates you know your business mm-hmm. to the you know to the viewer through the eyes of the shark type of thing um and so yeah i mean i it was in an article total, total I read, game changer. That, that, but there was a recut of the deal outside of the show. How does that work? You know, I, I can't get into the specifics of it. Um, you know, it, it it was something that we both mutually came to. Everybody left being like, well, this is a much better setup. Um, we, we basically didn't need as much capital as we had talked about on the show because we yep. closed a million bucks. Right. And, yeah. you know, Damon's an incredibly smart business guy. And he was like... I'm not going to overfund a business that doesn't have use, you know, where you can't put use of proceeds to work. Right. right? Yeah. And we were like, great. And, you know, we obviously don't want to take more dilution, uh, you know, because we just raised a bunch of money. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, we, we worked something out. Everybody has been super happy about it, um, you know, in the past. Uh, you know, the the thing that the show cares about and everybody else cares about, we care about it, that we have a deal. Uh, we work, you know, really closely with Damon. Um and again, you know, and and where we ended up was was pretty pretty great across the board. Um, so yeah, so we we end that year, um, you know, didn't really, uh, you know, didn't really, you know, put a ton of capital to work yet. 
following year, we really started kind of the digital marketing game, uh, grew the business to four and a half million dollars uh, in year two, kind of more of the same in year three, uh, grew it to about 18 million. Uh, year after that, we just closed a $3 million Series A, all from angel investors, no outside capital, uh, built it to 50 million. Last year, we did 100 million, and this year, we're looking to double the business again. So obviously, you've built a tremendously capital efficient business. Super. You know, um, so in, in and as you mentioned, that you know the pricing was a little bit a little bit of trial and error, but it seems like you've really valued capital efficiency. Tremendous. I mean, I think that's one of the things that you know, uh, if, if you look at the ecom landscape, um, I think that's one of the things that we probably stand out from the most among our peers. You know, you look at and look, there's not right or wrong. Um, you know, there's different ways of doing it. Um, I wanted to do it the way that we wanted to do it, less stress, focus on profitability early on. Um, look, our margins are really good. So, like, you know, but we didn't go out and raise 100 million bucks, right? Like, I, you know, I have plenty of friends who've, you know, taken 50, 100 million, 200 million dollar, you know, rounds and crazy valuations with multiple, you know, uh, liquidity preferences and all this stuff, but they're betting the farm, right? right. Um, ours was like, let's just build a really solid, profitable business where, we aren't relying on outside capital mm -hmm. and kind of control our own destiny. Um, I think it's been, you know, part luck, part what we do, part timing, um, you know, that we have been able to sustain the level of growth that we have been able to sustain. Yep. Um, but again, yeah, we've got a super healthy balance sheet um, and we're looking to, you know, continue to grow. And how do you determine how quickly you want to grow? Because you don't have to answer to anybody. <laughs> like, how do you think about that? Well, and you're, I, not, and you're not trying to outrun some type of, you know, economic structure that you have in place. Well, right. that's the thing, right? And so every every entrepreneur that I talk to, you know, that I either advise or invest in, you know, I, I say back into it, right? And so this this was kind of the model that we did. You know, I looked at the apparel industry. Right. I went and did all of the research. I said, where are the comps at exit? What are the what are the revenue kind of targets? What are the EBITDA you know, targets that you need to hit right. in order to become attractive to a G3 or a VF Corp or a private equity firm or yep. whatever? Right. Because I knew that I had a lot of my friends money I, because we didn't take take venture. I took that capital incredibly seriously. Yes, right. Yeah. These are people that I see every week. Right. These are you know, this is like kids, college funds, right. you know, potentially like down payments on homes and, and stuff. So like. I I was super 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 like conscious about you know how we spent our money, um, and so I backed into it and I said okay like I happened to get connected to the COO of G three and I said look when you're looking at acquiring apparel companies what 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 are the benchmarks and he's yep. like anywhere from thirty to fifty million we start to get interested has to be profitable and you know we'll look at anywhere from kind of a one and a half to a three times multiple of revenue or anywhere from a 10 to a 15 times multiple on EBITDA depending on how fast you're growing right. and what the kind of the, the economics of the business look like and so when it, when i knew that i wasn't going to go and raise at a 10 times multiple on 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 revenue right like all that all i would be doing would be digging a grave that i then have to like climb out of or, or setting a hurdle that i with your friends too right all right exactly and so I was like, if we can calculate how to get to 50 million by taking as little dilution as possible, you know, and, and be profitable, then I know we will start to become attractive. And sure enough, like we hit 50 million bucks and like the shark started, you know, circling and a yeah. bunch of private equity firms and strategics. They all wanted to buy us. We ended up doing a private equity transaction that was 
incredibly positive for everybody across the board. Our employees, our investors, you know, the founders, like everybody who was involved in the business was a massive win. We still own a large majority of the company. Um, Who did you do a transaction with? A firm called Great Hill Partners. Okay. Um, We don't disclose the the details of the deal, but um, again, quite strategically, we've wanted to fly under the radar. We haven't... You know, we haven't wanted to be like, oh, how big we are and how much money we've raised. Because, <laughs> yeah. like, all that does to me is, like, put a huge, like, bullseye on your back. Yeah. And people are just going to come out of the woodwork being like, oh, those schmucks, like, I can do that better than them. I have friends who I can raise capital from. I'm going to go take some of that market share away. Um, and so, yeah, we did a transaction last year. The best thing that we ever did, uh, you know, I talked to a bunch of other entrepreneurs who, you know, completed kind of, minor, you know, minority, majority uh private equity transactions but still wanted to stay on to grow the business and they just said the way that it changes your ability to kind of take risk and make bigger decisions and grow faster especially when you're capital conscious like we are um you know really you know because you've taken some chips off the table you're not playing you're playing with house money at that point um so again not 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 the playbook for everybody but the one that worked out for us and uh, it was great. How did you have that insight, though? And I think that's just it's just really interesting that you built backwards uh, that way. I'll, I'll tell you, um, I, I got incredible advice from one of my best friends. Actually, she grew up across the street from me. We went to prom together. Uh, her name's Haley Barna. She was the co-founder of Birchbox. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, this is the early days of, you know, raising a ton of capital, growing something super big. The trying antithesis to focus on- of your capital efficient yeah model. and she sat you know she just raised at a 500 million dollar valuation or something crazy and she sat me down she actually invested in bombas and she said do me a favor she's like set your eyes on growing a 50 to 100 million dollar company do not take a lot of capital fly under the radar and like you know do this thing really efficiently she's like the stress of every year of trying to figure out when you are going to run out of money right. she's like is not fun was like, that surprising advice? For, yeah, of, that of point, course. Was everything that way? Or? No, everybody else around me was, you know, raising tons of money. And right. it felt like, oh, in order to be successful, you've got to raise 50 million bucks. And so, like, <laughs> that's where I think so many entrepreneurs, they're like, oh, well, look at look at how much prestige these entrepreneurs get. You know, they're on the front cover of these magazines. They're getting the keynote speaks at a bunch of these <laughs> conferences. And then they're th- unicorns. They're, they're unicorns. <laughs> and then three years later... And, and I did that with a smile and quote <laughs> and air unquote quotes. air quotes. You know, and then a few years later, you're watching them fire sale their business for a couple million bucks, and yeah. you know nobody made any money. The founder then has to like work at this like terribly boring. But public they sure company. did a great job of buying all the billboard ads in the New York subway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I will never take anything away from you know the the risk and the vision that it, that it takes. Right? That takes a, a huge amount of confidence and and you know to do that. Um, you know, I, I, I benefited from the fact that we weren't the first, right? Yeah. I could watch, yeah. I watched guilt group fail. Right? Yeah. I watched fab.com fail. You know, I watched all of these other people struggling, you know, talking about CAC to LTV ratios and I'm sitting there, I'm scratching my head. I'm like, businesses, profitable businesses have been around since as long as I can remember. Like, <laughs> like wood chips, right. like wood chips. Yeah. My dad, when I told my dad that I was going out to raise a million dollars, he was like, he couldn't fathom what I would do with a million bucks. He's like, I started with five thousand right. dollars. You know, he built his business over thirty years. Yeah. It was a very different type of thing. So you're Absolutely. like, you're like, but my the LTV to CAC. He's like, no, 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 no. Or I even know at, at least LTV I'm not raising. CAC. At least I'm not raising fifty million. Right, yeah. right. Right after the break, we'll be back with our featured guest, Bombas co-founder and CEO Dave Heath. 
Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. Subscribe for free on the podcast app of your choice and visit us at unfinishedbiz.com. Follow us on our Unfinished Biz LinkedIn page for news and updates in addition to each episode. And if you love the show, we love five stars. But now, let's get back to our episode with Bomba's co-founder and CEO, Dave Heath. One question that we have is, was there a bet the company moment? Sure, Shark Tank, for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, we were, you know, seven months into the business, you know, we had some numbers, but like, you know, it wasn't, wasn't, certainly wasn't like metricized. We didn't have KPIs. We were just like, oh, <laughs> we're selling socks and people like them. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm doing customer service. I'm getting emails from people like, really like your socks. But like outside <laughs> of that, like, you know, putting yourself on television yeah. where you know, right? You know that the intention of them is to like, let's see if we can grill you and crack you, right? right. And like make you look like an idiot on national <laughs> television. No pressure. And so like our biggest fear was like, we cannot look dumb. So like we spent months just like, we, we had a list of, we had an Excel sheet with 400 something questions on it oh, wow. based on like watching the show. We're very diligent and like the best answers and like how we can <laughs> use this answer to get them to go talk about like our mission side of the business, which we knew would like air really well on TV and get away from things like, you know, cost per acquisition because we didn't spend any money on marketing at the time. So we didn't really right. have cost per acquisition. And so, yeah, I mean, that was it's a very valuable spreadsheet that I'm sure a lot of people would like. <laughs> they would. I don't even know where it is anymore. But uh, yeah, that that was certainly a bet the moment, right? Because you, you've no, you've no control, right? You, yeah. you film it, and you know if they catch you picking your nose, you're that you're on television picking your nose. I mean, you you guys have crushed it at Bombas. I mean, is there a particular moment that's that really stands out as like the best moment? There are a lot. Um, you know, I think I think million pairs donated was an incredible like milestone for us you know i the, the backstory here is you know when we launched the indiegogo campaign like literally the day before we're writing up the faqs yeah. as one does um your care instructions and size charts and stuff and i turned over to randy and i was like i was like let's have some fun with this i was like why don't we put in one here that says if we donate a million pairs of socks i'll get a tattoo of our logo to celebrate um, and I had no tattoos at the time. You know, I was like not a tattoo person. Um, you know, my mom, I think, said like if I ever got a tattoo, she'd write me out of the will. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but I was like, eh, it's a lark. You know, yeah. we even sold one pair. We're not donating a million. Right. right. Like thought it'd take 10 years and people yeah. would forget about it. And then two <laughs> years later, we donated our millionth pair. And, uh, you know, I, I walked over to Randy and I said, look, I'm a man of my word. Let's go get that tattoo. He's like, I'm filming this. We, you know, I got it on the inside of my arm. He filmed it. We were like, let's turn this into like a video to thank our customers yeah, for the journey and awesome. show them that I had this thing. And that thing went on. That video, we cut it, produced it. It's a case study at Facebook because it was like one of the first videos to get like over 100 million views as a brand, as like a D2C brand or something like that. Uh -huh. um, I think it's got something like 180 million views wow. today. That's crazy. Um, and that was like a huge, that was the year that we went from five to, to like almost 20 million in revenue. And like 10 million of that revenue was directly attributed <laughs> to that one video. Yeah, that's a good, and that's, so like that's a high ROI on that. Yeah. So like, like so many, it was like a, a big company moment. Cause I was like, Holy shit, we donated a million pairs of socks. It's right here. Yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. yeah. trying to see your um, chat. You know, I've, I've since gotten a lot more. It's, it's very addictive. I do not. So when are we getting our VMG tats, Rob? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about throwing out numbers here after hearing that story. <laughs> yeah. Be very cautious. I'll do it after Wayne you, does it. Done. You promise on, Air, you know, recorded. Yeah. Um, have you so had any? That was a, that had, was a big moment. You had any low points at all in this? Yeah. Uh, 
Q4 last year was one of the it's weird because it was like semi, you know, it was like bittersweet. Um, we again, because our, our nature from the start has been very conservative. Right. I think like, you know, we projected like 500,000 our first year. And we did two million. We projected like two million our second year and we did five. We projected like eight. You know, like it's always been the story yeah. where we've over projected um, last year going from 50 to 100, uh, you know, Obviously, with that volume, you know, it starts to com- the, the amount of work and, and, you know, the order volume just starts to compound. Right. And going from like 100 orders to 1000 orders at a warehouse is like nothing going from, you know, 10,000 orders to 30,000 orders like that is like a, an insane amount of growth. So we went into Q4. We'd under projected sales by 30 uh, percent heading into Black Friday. Black Friday came. We did 30% more than we thought we would over that period of week, that week, which is obviously, you know, when everything happens, yeah. completely broke our warehouse. Like they ended up, I think they were like seven days behind on shipping. They, um, do you guys do your own? No, okay. no, we use a third party. Um, you know, and, and the shipping that they did, there was like a 5% inaccurate picking rate, you know, because, because they were just like, let's yeah, get it out. Churning. I had yeah. one customer, I'm not kidding. We had one customer who got an empty poly bag that just had a piece of paper written in it saying out of stock, right? Like they were, these people were just like, they at the warehouse, they were just so overwhelmed. They're just like, fuck it. Like, yeah. just like, you know, like get it. I don't care if there's no socks, just get a package out to the people. Send them an empty bag. Send them an empty bag. I was like, take your socks off. I mean, one of the one of the funniest but saddest moments in my career. Um, And then, as a result, our customer service team, which is in house got murdered yeah. like absolutely murdered there was a business insider article written about like <sighs> we had people being like this company's going out of business they stole my money like yeah, wow. I, i've reached out to them for six days no one's responding <laughs> to me so we ended up having to make a really like rash like quick decision we took fourteen thousand customers we're like we're never going to get to these people yeah right it's always going to be this trickle in seven day right like because yeah. it's like lifo like or, or first in first out um so you know, we we were just like we got to quarantine these people. You know, otherwise we're just going to continue to f- piss off more and more and more and more right. and more people. So we just I sent a mass email to fourteen thousand people, being like, "Hey, really sorry, we got crushed. Uh, you're not going to get a response from us. So whether you're asking about a size chart, whether you're asking about your order, I refunded your entire order, and here's a gift card for the same amount that you ordered. I hope you come back. Uh, it was a one point set. We refunded one point seven million dollars worth of orders. Uh, gave out one point seven million dollars worth of uh, gift cards. Oh, um, you know, in the height of Q two, and I mean, you know, it, you know, in the summer, it's like you lost my socks. It's like, well, whatever. I wait a couple of weeks. Like you lose a gift order in or like mess up a gift order in Q four. Yeah, you would have thought that like I killed the house, like the family <laughs> right. dog. Right? right? It's like you're the worst human ever. You ruined Christmas. Oh, you know, it's just like, dude, like. Chill out. How was that received? How was that move received? So, so funny enough, uh, in, incredibly well. I mean, our there, you know, all, unanimously, everybody across the board was best customer service I've ever had. You know, like people who literally were like, "Oh, one of my socks was wrong." Like we refunded their like whole twelve pack order, and then right. gave them another hundred fifty bucks to come back and buy more. So, in, in, interestingly enough, that cohort of customers, because we've tracked it, yeah, actually has a higher LTV now. Really, as a result. I, of, uh, so is that your recommendation no. for entrepreneurs? No. Don't no. ship them. Give them a gift card. No. They're going to love you for 
social life? No, 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 no. <laughs> That's no, what I'm no. actually thinking about. I think I may have bought socks during that period. I don't actually remember because I is right. Are around. you trying to make a claim right now? <laughs> no, exactly. you, trying, trying to ask this man I'm for a, a happy gift card? Customer. I'm a happy customer. I, I didn't have the issue though. I wasn't in the quarantine section. You were not in the quarantine. I didn't get the uh, you know the 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 you know the picture of the foot. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, it's. Uh, so what keeps you up at night these days? Um, I think the the biggest thing for 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 us right now, um, you know, the business feels like it's in a really good place, right? Financially, economically, um, you know, the 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 trajectory is up and to the right. Um, you know, we're super profitable. We're going to end the year with a ton of cash on our balance sheet. So, like, the things that kept me up at night early days are like, how am I going to pay my friends back? Right. Like, oh my god, our CPA is doubled, and like, you know, the unit economics don't work anymore. And like, we're never going to scale this thing. I'm going to go out of business. And what about a recession? And like, all these things <laughs> that like, you know, could easily, you know, destroy the business overnight. Um, those things I don't worry about anymore. But um, the new things are, you know, we started the year with 54 employees. We're at 104 right now, so six months in. Uh, we're trajecting to be around 150 by the end of the year. And the advice that every entrepreneur has gone through the same stage are like, you will watch watch things change when you go from 50 to 100 plus employees, just in terms of like culture and communication yeah. and like you didn't need process before because everyone could sit in the same room mm-hmm. and there's like two people in a department and like you just like you everybody knew who to go to talk to when they needed a thing and decisions were disseminated very quickly and you know uh clearly throughout the organization now we've brought on so many people and i mean incredibly talented like the fact that we're the size we are, we can now attract the level of talent and also could pay for the level of talent uh, <laughs> that, that we couldn't afford before. Um, you know, the people who are kind of more scrappy and willing to take equity in lieu of uh, in, in lieu of uh, salary. Um, but you know, people are we're running at a super rapid pace, and decisions are being made in silos and. So our big kind of initiative for this year was organizational design for scale, and just trying to figure out, you know. How do you know we're 104 people, five and a half, six, almost six, six years in business, and only four people have ever left the company, so oh, uh, wow. voluntarily. That's a great, and that's a great all four step. of those people, except for one, didn't leave for another job. They all left for personal, go back to business school, yeah. move close to their family, go yep. work on a project. Um, so we we very much value company culture and are super proud of what we've built and you know constantly named you know top companies to work for you know all the magazines and stuff so um the thing that keeps me up at night is how do we keep that level of intimacy uh where everybody feels like family everybody's super trustworthy everybody knows what's going on knows what we're fighting for um as we kind of get further and further away and i can't have those personal one-on-one relationships that i used to have with everybody although i try rob i think it's been a great story of yet again of capital efficiency for sure and i think this one even different than many of the businesses that we've historically invested in this is a direct-to-consumer business within a New York ecosystem that generally preaches capital inefficiency. Right, and raising a lot of money and maybe not even knowing exactly what to do with it yet, but just having a war chest just in case. And have that be the win. Right. And whereas Dave's very clear in, in this episode about how that's not the win at all. The win is building a really great business that consumers want to buy products from mm-hmm. and have a profitable business. And interestingly, it feels like he learned a lot of that from his, his family, right? His dad was an entrepreneur 
And I think that's one of the more interesting things that actually we've started teasing out is that so many of these founders that we've spoken to, it's it's kind of run in the family. It's a different type of serial entrepreneur. That's right. And in fact, you know, that key relationship that he met along the way through his family of the Gold Toe CEO. And I think that really helped get him started. Mm -hmm. That's not all he learned from family. I think a big part of who he is is the great outdoors. And that came from family as well. Big work-life balance. Um, you know, I love to travel. I'm a big snowboarder. Um, I like to race cars. Um, you know, I like to exercise, work out, meditate. You know, getting finally into a space where I can start to, uh, you know, where the business isn't running me anymore. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, taking time to just work on myself and, and you know, try to, you know, I feel like I set out with this big intentional goal to create something, and then I did and. Uh, you know, there's a lot of sacrifices you have to make along the way in terms of dating and, you know, mm-hmm. family and friends and uh, financial things. You know, you end up living in small apartments and eating cheap food. Now uh, you're the sock baller. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I wouldn't no. go that far. Uh, tattoo right there. Yeah, exactly. Sock baller right across my chest. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, you know, neck tattoo. That's right. Um, but no, I yeah, I'm 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 grateful to be in a place where I I now have the time and freedom because I've got a, such an incredible team below me. Um, it's easy to take a two week or three week vacation um, and know that you know I'm not dependent on it anymore. Um, you know, and that was a big evolution for me this year was really trying to learn how to like step away because um, at the beginning of the year I, I looked at my calendar I was like from seven a.m. till seven p.m. meetings every single day like like every single hour mm-hmm. of the day. And I've gotten to the point now where I'm like, oh, I don't need to be in that because there's six people who are way more qualified than I was ever at. Um, so it's nice. Let's put some of that work-life experience to, to the test here with our signature rapid-fire game. All right, let's do it. 60 seconds. Let's try to get through as many as we can. Okay. All right. What is your guilty pleasure? Racing cars. Top of your bucket list. Everest. Uh, would you rather be able to speak to any animal or speak in foreign language? Animal. If you could meet any historical figure, who would it be? Churchill. Hmm. Morning person or night owl? Was a night owl, now morning person. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? Uh, flight. Read a book or watch a movie? Read a book. High five or fist bump? High five. If you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what Pizza. would it be? Yeah, your favorite consumer brand that's not your own. Nike. As a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Businessman. Celebrity crush. Ooh, not too many. <laughs> Sorry, pass. <laughs> Favorite way to unwind after a long day? Just meditate, chill, work out. Any pet peeves? Uh, social media. First job? Uh, Delhi. Last concert you went to? Ooh, had uh, I go to a lot. Um, OAR? Listen to podcasts or music? Both. Uh, favorite vacation you've been on? Galapagos. Who would play you in a movie of your life? Uh, Jason Statham, just because we're both bald. Awesome. <laughs> What's your go-to karaoke song? Uh, Friends in Low Places. What was your fr- All right. Well, last question. What advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? Um, I give this one a lot, but I believe in it, um, is focus. Um, I think early days you look out and, you know, I think the beauty of being a startup or, you know, small is that you can be agile and you can like zig and zag super quickly. Um, but I think it's too easy to, to go, 
all right, this thing's not working. I'm going to do this thing. And I'm going to do this thing. And I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to put like five things out into the world. And I'm going to try to like, and I remember, you know, Blake from Tom's, um, you know, gave me the best advice early on. You know, I'd said, you know, I think we were in year two and I was like, we've sold a million dollars worth of socks. Like this is a tremendous amount. Yeah. Like we're going to now make underwear and t-shirts and sweatpants and sweatshirts and shorts and all this stuff. And he was like, just like chill. He's like, you have not sold anything. He's like, <laughs> nobody knows who you are. He's like, focus on doing one thing and one thing really, really well. He's like, at Tom's, we sold that that one silhouette that they're famous for. He goes for the first five years or four years in four colors, and we didn't have anything else. And he's like, we built a really, really big business off of that. And he said, think of the brands that you like and admire. Nike started with running shoes. Under Armour started with base layers. Lulu started with you know um, yoga shorts. Like you think of like the brand. Nobody yeah. starts and like here's 700 products that we make. Like <laughs> it's one story, one product. Become well known for it. Um, you know, it's easy to get distracted, but you know, I think if you stay laser, laser focused, and I think that's one of the ways we were so capital efficient is we weren't trying to do pop-ups and global expansion and multiple product categories and wholesale. And, you know, the list goes on and on. We were just, all we're going to do is try to sell socks on the internet. Like that's about as simple as it gets. (laughs) That's great advice from the Donna socks. And his dog Cooper, who has not barked the entire time. Kudos to you, Cooper. He's sleeping. So, Dave, thanks for joining us on Unfinished Biz. Appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to Unfinished Biz. I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We'll be back on the next episode with a member of the VMG family, Rachel Drury, founder and CEO of Daily Harvest, which partners with farmers who grow the freshest food, freezes everything to lock in nutrition at its peak crafts recipes, and delivers to your door for a no-fuss meal. Daily Harvest is a much bigger business than it was when Rachel set out to conquer frozen food, but she's learned some tough lessons along the way. I can't tell you how terrifying it is to me that people are are hyper-refining things like cauliflower and putting them in pretzels. Find out how capital efficiency, food porn, and word of mouth keeps Daily Harvest on the rise. These are the opinions of Robin and Wayne and our guest entrepreneur and are not necessarily the opinions and thoughts of VMG partners. And now a word from our lawyers. This is not an offer to buy or sell any investments. Entrepreneurs interviewed on this podcast may not be associated with VMG businesses and discussions of their companies should not be viewed as an endorsement by VMG.